Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, the CEO and co-founder of iRelaunch, and your host for today. This is part two of our conversation with Laura Zygman. Laura is the author of the very popular book, Separation Anxiety, that was recently published. She's also the author of Animal Husbandry, which was made into a movie, and has written three other books called Dating Big Bird, Her, and Piece of Work. She has been published in numerous uh, publications, New York Times, Washington Post, and she also produced a popular online series of animated videos. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts with her husband, son, and deeply human Sheltie. And this is a continuation of my conversation with Laura. I hope you have listened to part one and that you will enjoy part two. Here we go. Laura, you know, I, I have to tell you, I admire so much that you have been willing to put in the public domain discussion, uh, a first person discussion of very personal topics and I want to understand what, well, first of all, I want to talk about two of them. One is you had mentioned breast cancer. Uh, you, you had taken, uh, that was part of one of your career breaks. You had your own health issue. And I think that was another time when I, I don't know if I had started following you at that point, but you published something called the Brant, And I want to know if you can uh, talk about that a little bit in the context of uh, the health crisis that you were working your way through. And then I also want to talk about uh, the New York Times article about the challenges of keeping financially afloat while you were caring for your, for your parents. How did you have the wherewithal? Um, did you feel worried about putting some of these topics in the public domain um, when they're so personal? You know, that's something that a lot of people um, talk about, and it just never really occurred to me. I think the generation before me, I have friends who are about 10 or 15 years older than I am who had cancer, breast cancer, who did not go public. And, and they were part of a generation, I think, where, it, um, you know, it really made sense to keep it private because they either had jobs they were afraid they'd get fired. And of course I wasn't in that position. I was just like home, you know? So for mm-hmm. me, it really wasn't, I, but I do understand some people are very private and that's totally cool. Like you don't have to be public just because some people are comfortable. doesn't mean they have to be comfortable, but I was very comfortable with it because I, that's just how I am. And I started this brand. I had a blog, uh, a website, you know, I don't know. I think I was one of the last authors to get one in 2006. I was very late to the game. And I started, instead of a blog, I started a blog plus rant. So I called it a brand. And uh, <laughs> I love that. A year, um, I, you know, had this diagnosis and I went through the surgery. And one of the reasons I wrote about my experience with this double mastectomy reconstruction all in one day was because it was so farcical that I felt I, like I was a duty. I felt like there was a duty to warn people because there's this pinkwashing in the breast cancer world that like, you know, you're supposed to go into your surgery with, you know, and like really excited and happy and it's so great. And, and there's just like all of this pinkwashing positivity. And mm-hmm. I was also like, hey, that's great if you're, if you are that way, but I'm not. And mm-hmm. no room... I think at times for like a a real reality in terms of like, you are allowed to feel negative. You are allowed to feel really 
nervous and afraid and bad, you know, and you'll get over it. But like this, this insistence on positivity, you know, on forgiveness and positivity, and you have to look at it like this. No, I don't. I don't have mm-hmm. to look at it like this. And there's nothing more offensive, I think, for people who are experiencing really hard times or, you know, especially grief to be told like, you know, it's time, it's time to move on now. Like there's just nothing more offensive than that. And so it's it's also like that sense of you just not allowed to have your feelings. And so I was like, I'm going to have my feelings. I'm going to write about how ridiculous this surgery was. And of course I was grateful to have it. And I was grateful and all that. I was grateful a million different ways, but it was also like I had been told by all these surgeons that it was nothing. I'd be up and about in two weeks. Well, that, just wasn't the truth. And so I wanted to kind of inform women that, hey, this is a great surgery if you have like four months. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I had four months because, like I said, I wasn't working. Um, but, you know, other people don't have four months and they should be told that they're not going to be up and around in two weeks. It's just, you know, so I, that's why I wrote it. And I mm-hmm. didn't really have any issue around being honest like that. And I just want to say, as a reader of it, I, I remember. There was so much humor in it, the the way you wrote about it. And, you know, it was such a serious topic. And there were so many parts of it that you, you you know, you didn't sugarcoat at all. But you also interspersed all of that with with this underlying um, humorous, I don't know, element. And I I guess, was that, was it therapeutic for you in some way to put it on the page and talk about it that way? No. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it is because like you said, there's so much, you know, there's black humor, you know, in most things. And so, especially for that, I mean, I remember like I was in the hospital for, I was supposed to have five days in the hospital. Like I literally couldn't move, like literally couldn't move. And Mm -hmm. uh, after two days, they, they tried to get me to leave the hospital. And when I wouldn't, you know, sort of like when I wasn't really amenable to that idea after two days, um, when I'd been promised five days, they mm-hmm. sent a social worker in to talk to me because, and the, and the social worker asked me if I was afraid to go home. So I answered, yes, I was afraid to go home. And they said, does your husband hit you? And I said, no, uh, no I'm not afraid to go home because I'm afraid because like, I can't move. Like right. there was, you know, and it's not that it's funny that people have domestic situations like that, but to me, it was just so absurd that they were, you know, they were asking me you know, that question. Yeah. They're drawing those conclusions. Yeah. Just but, like go right to that. Right. right. But I right. think the humor really gives people, it lets you exhale in a way because these are really tough topics to discuss. And, um, and there is a lot of humor. It's just ridiculous. You know, life can be ridiculous sometimes and you have to, you know, it's good to acknowledge it. Right. And then, um, not to belabor this, but just to move back back to the New York Times article yeah. for a minute about um, the the feeling like you're in a very precarious situation financially, uh, and how you were advised maybe that was not such a big such a good idea to put in the public domain, uh, but you did anyway. Uh, and you talk about how there is typically shame attached to that. Uh, were were you feeling like by getting that? out in the open and talking about it honestly, uh, that it would allow other people to uh, acknowledge that 
I don't know, even if they weren't acknowledging publicly, would, would allow other people to face that same kind of situation and feel less shame? Like, was that part of your thinking or was that more of a byproduct that, that happened afterward? Definitely, because, you know, anytime you can help somebody else feel better in even a small way is motivation for revealing things about yourself that you may not necessarily want to reveal. And I was asked to write that piece. I, it was one of those pieces where I really was like, I intellectually wanted to do it. And then I just viscerally, when it was time to sit down and write it, I could not believe how like hard it was because it was like, it's one thing to intellectually feel no shame. And then to actually sit down and write it, you know, to have been, someone who was getting, you know, really nice fat book deals and movie deals and all that to have it really sort of out in the open, like that had dried up, that had really dried up. My income had dried up, um, you know, for whatever reasons, you know, I'm, I'm the main breadwinner and, and I was not able to really produce like what I needed to produce. It's very, even if you know, you're not ashamed, you feel just a sense of even sadness that like your inability mm-hmm. to provide or to, you know, to really earn, you know, there's a real sense of pride we take in being able to earn um, our living. Even if we're single, when I was single, the fact that I, I never earned a lot when I was single until I was, you know, selling my books, but um, you know, I just, even just supporting myself in New York in an apartment, I never took money from my parents. I was, you know, just like never got into debt. I was lucky, you know, in that way. And so I always took pride in that. And I took pride in the money I made as a, as a novelist and, you know, selling the film rights and having the movie made and that kind of thing. But the, that was a relatively short lived time of um, abundance. And uh, the years, the lean years were, were many more lean years. Um, and mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It was, I really did feel like a need to, to tell that to people because people really feel shame. You know, and it's right. so unfair. It's just so unfair to make people feel, to have people feeling bad, and and the sense that you're you're supposed to kind of um, not talk about money, you know. Um, and a lot of times on Twitter, there are threads where people are writers will say, "No, my husband is a big lawyer, and that's why I'm able to sit in my beautiful office and 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 write all day." You know, sometimes people really do come clean about yeah. why they have an easier time in terms of, you know, in terms of just having the time um, that doesn't, you know, you can have a lot of time and still not write. So you have to give them credit for doing it whatever way they do it. But there are a bunch of threads have come about the past couple of years where people are being really honest, um, which is nice because, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I want to thank you for writing it. I, I just thought it was brave. I thought it was important. Thanks. And I, I was really riveted when I, when I, I read that piece and it's one of those pieces, it's a relatively short piece yeah. and those are sometimes the hardest yeah. to, to write. You have to have so much economy of words, but you're still trying to get across so much and, and you really accomplished that. And uh, thank you. That was, thank you. It's really something. Um, I do want to skip to this part about I, what is it like when you, your book is made into a movie like I, what happens? Do you get a phone call? I mean, do you have even like some inkling in advance that there's some sort of a negotiation going on or how does that happen? Yes. Yeah, so the way it usually happens is um, you have a literary agent that deals with selling your book to publishers. 
and they often um, contract out to other uh, film agents. So you're either you know sent along to a place like CAA or UTA or WME, the big talent agencies, William Morris Endeavor, creative artists, those kinds of really big places. And I've been at all of those. Um, and they have, um, in addition to representing people like Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, all, that, all the actors and directors, they have a, a book division. And so there's a group of agents within those big talent agencies out in, the, out in LA who sell, take books and sell them to, um, back then it was, uh, they would sort of, they would submit to producers, directors, studios, and I guess it's similar now, except back then it was sort of easier. You were able to just sort of sell to one person, like a producer and the producer would buy it on behalf of a studio. But now you kind of have to have a whole deal in place. You have to have a director on board, a producer on board. You have to kind of interest a whole team before they make the deal. So, um, so back then I, you know, my book was, uh, kind of a hot product, that first one and, um, CAA was representing me and yeah, I got a really nice, exciting phone call that Linda Obst, who had been the producer for Sleepless in Seattle wow. and Flashdance was, she had a production deal at Fox 2000, which was a new division of 20th Century Fox. And um, that was like, who would not want that phone call? And so it was great. And the way it generally works is they hire, I think they had asked me if I wanted to write it. And my agent at the time suggested that I not do it. And I think he was right. It had taken me about six years to write the novel. And, you know, writing a screenplay is very different, very different from Mm. writing a novel. And so they hired somebody else. And what was really nice was, uh, I was living in Washington at the time and I was still single and Linda Obst would um, have me come out to LA. You know, they love to have meetings. So they, they would be like, we have to meet, we have to meet. So they would fly <laughs> out and you'd meet. Um, and they would, there was really nothing would happen during the meeting. You would just get together. Um, <laughs> call, you'd go back and your agent would say, what, what was the meeting? Nothing. I don't know. We had dinner. But um, so this went on for a while. And it was just, you know, as most people know, it's very, very rare to actually have a movie made or anything made. You can sell stuff or have stuff optioned. And in my later books, um, I mean, my parents used to refer to my second novel, Dating Big Bird, as the book that didn't have us Hollywood sale. <laughs> I was like <laughs> a failure. To, but, um, but the other, you know, was funny because her, my third novel, Her, was bought by Julia Roberts' company, and Wendy Wasserstein was hired to adapt it. Oh. And um, I met her, and she was great. And then, like, yeah, you know, was supposed to write it, and then she kind of disappeared, and then she died, which was so. She sad. died. Um, I remember. Um, and my fourth novel was optioned by Tom Hanks for Nia Vardalis, um, who was in my big fat Greek wedding. And wow, you know, oh, of course, exciting. it was the cover of Variety, and nothing happened. You know, um, typical. Uh, so, um, and then a little bit of interest in my new novel, um, Separation Anxiety. Hoping it comes through, but um, it's very exciting. You know, people often complain they don't like the movie version of their novel, and I just have never been one of those people who've ever complained. You know, would I have made some different decisions? Probably, but I was very happy to have a movie made. And what was funny was that it was in production right at the same time that Bridget Jones's Diary was in production. And Uh it was very exciting. My movie came out first and then Bridget Jones came out. But it was funny. This is like an echo to an earlier thing we were talking about, which is that, you know, my movie came out, didn't get great reviews, opened and closed within maybe two weeks, I think. It was in theaters very briefly. Um, you know, it's not the greatest movie, but hey. 
And so I, for years, people would say to me, ah, you know, gee, how'd your movie do? <laughs> and I was always like, it was the one time I actually, in the moment, was able to think of a response. And I was yeah. like, great. How did your movie do? <laughs> I couldn't believe someone was trying to shame right. that my movie, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I, right. I had one made. I don't care if it was open for an hour, you know. <laughs> right. That's just another example of that kind of feeling of like, you know, this success, success. How do you define success? And for me, right. I define success as having the movie, you know, made, you know, like that. So. Right. Oh, that's great. And super interesting about how movies, like you can, you can have your book optioned for a movie, but then maybe it never gets made, but even having them buy the, to potentially make it and not make it is still like a great thing. Yeah. So very interesting. Thank you. And tell us about um, Separation Anxiety, of course, your latest book, and it just went into paperback. And um, it's had all all sorts of acclaim. And I I just love reading everything about it. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about it, how you got the idea, what your writing process was, um, especially given the writer's block uh, discussion, uh, and where you are now with it? So I, um, in 2015, I was, I had gotten an actual job, job downtown Boston, working for a startup, a company called, um, a a happiness company. And, um, it was sort of disbanded and I was left without a a job, job. And I was ghostwriting two different books at the same time at that time too. And I decided that I really wanted to start writing a novel, even though I hadn't written one for many, many, many years. And so what I did was I, decided that I would dedicate one day a week and I went on Craigslist, which is like one of my favorite things to do. And I found out that I could get office space by the hour because I couldn't afford to have an office, even though that's what I really wanted. I couldn't afford an actual office. So I went on Craigslist and I found out that you could rent shrinks offices uh, by the hour, which I thought oh, was good idea. kind of creepy, but I was like, yeah. oh, for me. so I um, rented a shrinks office right in Harvard Square. It was a really cute little space. And I rented it, I think, Sunday afternoons and all day Mondays. And at least I knew I would go into that office uh, and I would not go right that day. So I always felt like, okay, the rest of the week when I'm doing, you know, other people's stuff, I had, you know, Sunday and Monday to do my own. And there were some mm-hmm. days that I went in there and did nothing and played solitaire on my phone. And other days I got a lot accomplished. And so I'll tell you about the novel and then I'm going to go back and tell you why baby steps are the key to like how you, you get anywhere. But the novel is about a woman who's 50 and she's in a marriage that you know, and that's another source of shame. People never want to talk about their marriages, you know, Mm -hmm. difficult marriages. So she's in a marriage that's very difficult. Her husband has severe anxiety and smokes a lot of pot and they would get divorced, but they can't afford to, they don't have enough money to have two places. So he sleeps in the basement and they pretend he snores. And, um, so he has this marriage that's not working. Her son is like a, te- you know, like a normal teenager, but sort of growing away from her. Her best friend is dying of breast cancer. And uh, her career is just not happening. She had a, a big success with a children's book years earlier and much like me, just could not get anything going. And, and that's the framework where the novel starts. And then she goes down to the basement to declutter with like the Marie Kondo thing mm-hmm. and ends up finding this old baby sling and putting the dog in the sling to feel a sense of comfort and to have like a comfort animal. And it was funny because I wrote um, a big chunk of it and I sent it to somebody 
and he read it and he was like, ah, yeah, you know, does it get funny? And uh, I was like, yeah, it does get funny, but I felt it was really important to start the novel in a sad place. Like I felt it was really important not to pretend, you know, that she's having great sex or that she's having an affair or that she's rolling dough, you know, all these great, these books start, you know, I was like, no, she's miserable. Like everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And then of course you can't have an entirely miserable book because no one wants to read it. So you have to balance that with uh, some kind of plot that's semi-entertaining. But I felt it was really important to mark that period of life that we, I think we all go through um, in some form or another. Sometimes it happens in your forties, other times it happens in your fifties or sixties, but where you really, especially in your career, you're, you're at a total loss. Um, so that's, that's like what the novel was about. Um, and, and how you move through that process of sadness to sort of getting a, a spark relit in yourself. And mm-hmm. so that was very much my story. I mean, I had, really stopped writing my own stuff in 2006. Um, I had a lot, you know, as we mentioned, a lot going on. And I just really felt dead inside, especially creatively. And all those years, I um, was always doing little things and always feeling like a failure that I wasn't able to monetize them. I know you were a big fan of my little videos that I made using the software called Extra Normal. And it was Mm -hmm. software that had animated characters. I think Geico did a really famous ad using them. And, but the software was great because you would pick your two little characters and you would literally write a script and it would take about 10 minutes for it to do its thing. And then it would produce this little movie where the characters spoke to each other in the words that you used. And I did about 75 of them. They were called annoying conversations and I would post them and they made the AOL homepage. Like they got a lot of traffic and <laughs> they were very, they were very clever and creative and funny. And I had so much fun doing them. And yet I felt so much like a failure because I couldn't figure out how to monetize them. Like it was so great, mm-hmm. but I wasn't earning from them. And I was just so frustrated. And then I decided I wanted to write a film script and I wrote a film script and my agents at the time loved it, but they couldn't sell it. And I felt like a failure because I hadn't, been able to monetize it. And so all of these things felt like just huge frustrations. And yet when it came time to sit down in that shrinks office on Sunday afternoons and Mondays with my laptop to write a novel, what did I do? I took the bones of the film script that I had written that had not sold. And I started with that the novel became very different. The, the film script was kind of a road trip movie, but it was about a couple. So, you know, I used a bunch of scenes, you know, from the screenplay um, and sort of seeded the beginning of the novel using stuff I had written. And then there were a few moments in the novel where I ended up taking things that I had put into those little movies. Mm. The point is that, you know, without those, without the work I had done all those years, feeling like I was wasting my time and spinning my wheels. I would have had a much harder time, you know, starting a novel from complete scratch, but I had done a lot. I had done more than I thought I had done over those years. And so nothing is wasted in terms of the, you know, in my, in my case, I'm talking about writing, but in other people's cases, it's like the efforts you make, you know, someone that you meet today may not help you, but maybe two years down the road, it's someone you're going to, you know, connect with or, or whatever. And so nothing is wasted. And I think that's the hardest thing um, when we're on a kind of fear trajectory of like, I have to make this happen. I have to make this happen. 
that we right. feel, oh, it's not working. It's not working right this minute. Well, sometimes it works out differently a little bit later, you know, and if you can hang on and, and keep the faith, um, it's really important to remember that it's just not wasted. You're not wasting your time. You know, it's very entrepreneurial. I, I, I mean, like what you're talking about being in the long game and baby steps and having things that you focused on in the past that you couldn't monetize all of a sudden come together um, in, in, in a completely new context. Uh, there are a lot of parallels there to the entrepreneurial journey. And, and I think, you know, it is an entrepreneurial journey. It is. Which, it's so interesting. I think if you're a writer or, or someone like in my position, it is you, you are an entrepreneur of your of yourself in a way. You have to figure out a way yeah. to to make a business out of what your you know what your experiences are, or what you think about, or what you care about. I, I love the expression "the fear trajectory." <laughs> <laughs> That's my life. Yeah, <laughs> I have to remember that one for sure. And and actually. Um, in keeping with the, the the entrepreneurial concept, you know, just getting into this whole topic of making a living as a writer, I, I you know, you've already talked very frankly about it, but, and you've talked about uh, so many of, of these, uh, the elements, and especially the ghostwriting piece, we're actually doing a mini series um, with a few different authors who are in all different stages of getting books published and, and success in their careers. Uh, but uh, no one has talked about ghostwriting. Uh, and, and so th that's, uh, that's a really interesting element. Uh, have you ever done any, uh, anything in the education field, teaching, teaching writing, um, and also you do a fair amount of freelance journalism and, and how does that play into it? Yeah. You know, I've never done any teaching. I think I've always felt really insecure because I don't have an MFA. Um, mm. And I was, you know, after I was in New York for five years, I applied to MFA programs. I got into one in Boston. I left New York, gave up my apartment all that. And I came to Boston and I started at BU. I had, it was a one year teaching fellowship and um, it just was not for me. I didn't like mm -hmm. it from like the first day and I dropped out and I moved back to New York. And for years and years and years, I felt like a total failure that I had just stayed for that year. And what was really funny is that I found out that the woman that took my place with the fellowship, I met her years later and she was like, it was a good thing you left. It wasn't a good year, but um, mm -hmm. but I've always felt, I think a little bit insecure that I don't have the credential to teach. Um, but I forget the second part of your question. Oh, well, I, the freelance journalism oh, yeah. piece. That's really gotten hard too. I think years ago, and I'm talking at least 10 years ago, you know, the, the print magazine, print journalism, print, all that stuff, you know, uh, 10 to 20 years ago, you could actually earn a living though. I did not you could earn a living writing magazine pieces, print, you know, print journalism was alive and well, they paid pretty well if, if you were writing for the major magazines, but now with online and everything's free and a lot of the print magazines have the print edition has dried up. So it's very, very hard, so much harder now to earn a living as, you know, like a freelance writer. I mean, to give you a sense of, you know, like a, a you know, I wrote a modern love piece for the times. Mm -hmm. I want to say it was, $600, but it could have been four. I used to write $400. I could have, I used to write the wedding, I, wedding pieces for the times, go to the rehearsal dinner. And then you, you spend all night there. Then you cover the wedding and then you have to turn the piece around. Like the next, you have to write it really fast and it has to be short. 
And that was, I think, $600. Like, that's what you're talking about when you're talking about writing for the Times, you know. Mm. Not a lot of money. I mean, obviously, people don't write. In, in my position, they don't, we don't write a piece for the Times for the money. Um, mm-hmm. There are other places, of course, that pay a lot more. But, but it's very hard now to make a living doing this. So most people, I mean, I pivoted to ghostwriting, like I said, a long time, a fairly long time ago. But I have a lot of people emailing me the past couple of years. Hey, <laughs> I used to be a reporter, journalist. How do you get ghostwriting work? And so there are like these little secret ghostwriting groups on Facebook that I'm part of two of them. And we do share leads. If we hear something that one of us can't do, we share, hey, does somebody want this? Or here's a book I can't do. There's a person that's looking for a ghostwriter, that kind of thing. So a lot of it's working out between ghostwriters and you know, a few of them make a ton of money. A few of them are on like the Trump beat, you know, the Oh, right. Lives of the, you know, the people like on the out fringes of the Trump thing. And, but a lot of, um, a lot of them make a really, really good living. I am really scraping by there too. It's really hard. It's hard to get mm-hmm. a job and it's hard to, um, you know, it always sounds like, oh, that's a nice, that's a nice figure. And then it's four payments and it's, you know, depends on when. A lot of times the celebrity you're working with is, is just really busy and the book is delayed because they had a movie to do and the book isn't coming out. And so your payment's still, you know, it's like that. It, it always sounds mm. better. So sometimes you have to have two projects going at the same time and who wants, who wants to do two, you know, but, it, you know, like that. Right. Well, that's very interesting to hear um, that, you know, there are some people that mix teaching in. And, and in fact, the writers that I'm aware of who teach, they don't have MFs, MFAs. It's so interesting to talk about that in terms of um, viewing it as a failure. Yet, you know, you made it in ghostwriting, even though I, I know that ebbs and flows, too. That's like a huge success. That's an area where a lot of people don't make it um, in terms of having that be an element of their writing career. So very successful there. And uh, it, it's, it's just fascinating to me how, how you, you put it all together. And then um, do you think now with, as you're coming off of the success of a very recent novel that you wrote and uh, like celebrate, I'm, I'm, I'm applauding and I'm so excited about that. Do, does, do you feel like, pressure now to produce the next novel or do you already have it in your head that nope now I'm going to take a period of time I'm going to try to focus on ghostwriting or something else and I'm especially not going to put that pressure on myself well it's funny I sold my next novel um this summer wow I wrote 70 pages during the pandemic. So it was after I came back from my little tiny tour before the world shut down mm-hmm. and then there were a few months of just sitting around like in shock that and fear of anxiety of what, you know, the, of COVID. And then this summer, my son went away and I was able to just have a lot of time on my hands to focus. And I started a new novel called small world. And, um, my publisher echo bought it on the basis of 70 pages. So I'm, like I said, the old whale wow. watch metaphor, I now I am just full of dread because I have a contract and I'm afraid <laughs> I won't be able to do it. Whereas before I was full of fear that I was never going to get a contract. So, you know, never happened. Right. But of course I'm overjoyed that I have a, a great publisher and I keep saying now all I have to do is write it. And, um, but I am excited and I am in complete disbelief that I've been able to 
you know, even come up with 70 pages and enough for a publisher to take a flyer on it. You know, I'm incredibly grateful well, after so Congratulations. Long. Yeah. It's really exciting and to have that come right on the heels yeah. of separation anxiety. Yeah. So that's great. Um, well, wow, Laura, I, I want to thank you for having uh, this long winding conversation about so many different topics. And I remain such a huge fan and so inspired by everything you're doing. Uh, I want to wrap up by asking you the question that we ask all of our podcast guests, and that is, what is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something that we've already talked about today? Well, I want, first of all, I want to thank you, and I, I'm a huge fan of yours too, um, and what you do. So my advice, again, just goes back to baby steps. Um, I remember in the midst of my most um, blocked years coming upon Instagram and it would take all I could, it would be all I could do to post a photo and write a little, it looked like a mini blog, like just that little space on the Instagram. Mm -hmm. I was like, I would fill it and I would be like, okay, <laughs> I wrote today. And that <laughs> was the level of like accomplishment or, you know, block was like, that felt like writing to me. And, you know, it seems like a joke as I talk about it now, but like as there were sometimes when I would craft that paragraph and feel like, okay, I can write, like, you know, I can still write. I wrote a really good paragraph and that, you know, it seems like a really small thing. And, you know, the sense of like just doing things along the way, those baby steps getting, you know, if you can't afford an office, do like what I did get, you know, by the hour, you know, do what you can to just take these little tiny baby steps. You may not be able to, you know, do something full-time or switch into a different field full-time, but just even those little things that you do um, really will help you and will add up and will help you transform um, to your next move. That's what I found. Yeah, it's such great advice. Um, and, and like, it applies in a very broad way. The idea of taking baby steps um, in a whole bunch of uh, parts of, of the relaunch journey. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a really great way to think about the process and to break it down and to keep yourself from feeling overwhelmed, um, or also too worried. It always gives you, you know, you're always moving in a forward direction when you're exactly. taking baby steps, even when they're small. So thank you. That, that That's excellent. Um, Laura, how can people find out more about your work, uh, especially separation anxiety? I have a website, um, so it's www.laurazegman.com, and I am fairly active on Twitter and Instagram, much less active on Facebook, um, but I'm on there a lot um, on Twitter and Instagram, so I post a lot there. Okay, and can you spell the website URL just so people know exactly how to spell your name? Sure, it's www.laurazegman, L-A-U-R-A, -A Z as in zebra, igman.com. Great. All right. Well, Laura, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. So great, Carol. Thank you so much. And that wraps up part two of our conversation with Laura Zygman. Hope you all enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to 321 I Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, the CEO and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host. For more information on iRelaunch conferences and events, 
To sign up for our job board and access our return to work tools and resources, go to irelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on Apple Podcasts and your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media. Thanks for joining us.